This episode of Long Read is sponsored by Haymarket Books. This September, Haymarket are organising Socialism 2022, the biggest socialist conference in North America. It runs from September 2nd to September 5th in Chicago. Speakers like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin Kelly and David Harvey will be there to discuss radical politics, history and strategy with hundreds of activists. You can find out more at socialismconference.org. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. At the start of this year, the investment fund BlackRock reached a new peak with $10 trillion in assets. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink has become one of the most influential figures in global capitalism. For CNBC, Fink's annual letter to his company's shareholders is a news event in itself. The head of the world's largest asset manager starts his annual communication with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact that the war has had on markets around the world, specifically the rate of globalization. Here's what he writes. I remain a long-term believer in the benefits of globalization and the power of global capital markets. Access to global capital enables companies to fund growth, countries to increase economic development, and more people to experience financial well-being. Recent events and the swift sanctions Western economies have levied against Russia have shaken his approach somewhat. And Fink says this, too. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has put an end to the globalization that we have experienced over the last three decades. Access to capital markets is a privilege, not a right. And following Russia's invasion, we saw how the sector, the private sector, quickly terminated longstanding business and investment relationships. And guys, I think that's what's incredibly interesting here. If, if Larry Fink is saying that, that globalization as we know it is coming to an end, that, that means something. Our guest today for a conversation about asset manager capitalism is Adrienne Buller. She's a senior research fellow at Commonwealth a progressive think tank. People might have heard a lot about firms like BlackRock in terms of size and the assets at their disposal. But in the most elementary terms, what is an index fund and how does it differ from traditional investment firms? Yes, yeah, so what's interesting about the kind of investment industry today is that it's dominated by firms like BlackRock, whose primary kind of business model is index or passive investing. And a passive fund or an index tracking fund um, kind of does exactly what the name says. So when we think of investment funds and hedge funds and all that, we kind of have this idea of like a Wolf of Wall Street style room full of traders and fund managers all yelling and like deciding what to buy and sell. Whereas with a passive fund or an index tracking fund, they are basically, they allocate the portfolio based on a predetermined kind of set of securities. So whether that's determined in-house or often by like a third party provider, you get a list of things that you should buy and how much of it you should buy. And usually it'll be like a representative sample or subsample of the market. So you might buy the S&P 500, which is the index of the 500 largest US-based corporations. So that covers everyone from like Exxon to Amazon to Microsoft and all the big names. Or it might be something niche like, you know, emerging markets mining, which would get you all the kinds of mining companies in specific countries in the world that are designated under that category. 
So it's a, it's a really big break with traditional active investing where what investors try to do is to beat the market. So they try to outperform you know, the average growth in share and other security prices over time. Um, whereas index funds eschew that altogether. Um, and they're just interested in, in tracking the market. So if the S&P 500 you know, grows by 5% in a year, then they want your fund to also grow by 5%. And that sounds like, I guess, less kind of sexy or enticing. But what's been interesting is that over time, you know, index funds have just consistently outperformed active funds. You know, sometimes you'll get an active fund that does really well. But for the most part, they fail in aggregate to just beat what a passive fund does, which is give you like slow, steady returns over time. And that's made them incredibly popular. They're also a lot cheaper than a traditional actively managed fund because you're just, you know, you buy a list of securities and you track it as opposed to paying a team of people to do all the research and make all those decisions. One journalist asked Larry Fink if he thought that passive investment funds would make a conventional stock market index like the S&P 500 less important. Great question. And the answer is yes, I do. I think through better reporting, better disclosure creates better data, and better data will be able to create better algorithms and analysis of each company. And through that process, we're going to be able to democratize how clients want to invest. They could have better control of the portfolios they want to invest in. And we are seeing across the board more and more companies who are saying, how can we create a more customized, personalized investment strategy? So they may be targeted off a certain index, or that may be the manner in which they want to closely approximate, but we're going to be, we're able then to create these more customized portfolios that meet the needs or the desires of a client. And this is where a great sum of the ETF money in 2020 has been going to, more of these sustainable, customized portfolios. What is the positive or optimistic case that's been made about the rise of index funds and passive investing? And do you find those arguments convincing? Yeah, so one of the kind of interesting arguments that gets made, and I talk about this um, in a review of a book called Trillions I wrote for Jacobin, is that passive funds have had kind of the effect of opening up the investment space to a lot more people. And in many senses, that's actually quite true. So traditionally, investing has really been, you know, the domain of the very wealthy, in part because you need to have, you know, you used to need to have a certain threshold of assets that you were going to invest and you had to pay quite a lot in fees to the managers of that fund, which basically made it untenable for most people. Um, And what passive investing has done is like hugely cut those fees, which opens up the space uh, to a lot more people and it's made it a lot more accessible. And so in some senses, that argument is true. And I think that's, you know, valuable in some ways. It's also cut costs for a lot of pension funds. Um, Many pension funds now invest passively or invest a lot of the pension assets passively, which means that they're spending less money paying, you know, lining the pockets of uh, managers and just more, you know, actually ensuring that the pension assets grow as much as possible. But on the other hand, I think that the rise of passive investing, um, and we can unpack this a bit after, has had some pretty significant like negative impacts as well, or at least ones that 
are concerning and that have sort of fundamentally changed the landscape of not only investing, but also just ownership and control in the global economy. So, you know, it's driven huge, huge concentration of ownership and power among, you know, a handful of elite asset management firms. So you mentioned BlackRock at the top. That's the biggest asset management firm in the world. About two thirds of their assets are invested passively, I think last time I checked. But they're closely followed by a group called Vanguard, which is almost an exclusively passive investment firm, and a few others that now are like primarily investing passively. And after the 2008 financial crisis, um, for a whole range of reasons, passive investing really took off. And that propelled this small kind of cohort of three or four firms to these like unprecedented positions of power and ownership. So today, you know, the the so-called big three, so that's BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street in the U.S., own together over 20% of the average S&P 500 company. And in the U.K., um, BlackRock and Vanguard together own 10% of the average kind of FTSE 350 companies, so that's the 350 biggest firms on the London Stock Exchange. And that might not sound like a ton um, at face value, but usually that ends up being quite decisive in terms of voting rights at corporate annual general meetings. So to unpack that a bit, um, corporations will have these meetings where they have tons of resolutions that if you are a shareholder, you're entitled to vote on. So that might be, do we appoint this director to oversee ExxonMobil? Or do we set a net zero target? Or do we set uh, human rights and labor standards targets, etc.? And so BlackRock and Vanguard and a few others have this immense kind of veto power often at corporations now. And, you know, evidence from a lot of groups suggests they're not really using that to kind of like steward these companies towards better behavior, even though people have accused uh, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink of like being too woke and caring about climate change. And so that's one of the reasons I have concerns about the growth of passive funds is just its role in driving this enormous concentration of ownership and control. And the other is that it's fundamentally kind of changing the way that capital is allocated in the global economy. And I think we'll come back to that later and we can unpack that a bit in the context of um, the climate crisis. Um, but it's basically, yeah, changing the sites of power in terms of who gets to decide where money goes, how those decisions are made, um, and sort of who is accountable. Following on from that point you made, how would you say that the major funds like BlackRock have been using the power that arises from their position as big investors in the wider picture? Yeah, so BlackRock are really interesting because unlike Vanguard, which tries to sort of just stay in its lane and be, you know, we are a passive investor and that's all we do and we don't engage politically. Um, BlackRock, in large part because of its CEO, Larry Fink, who I just mentioned, is hugely interested in the public domain and in politics and in policymaking. Um, and they're at a scale now where their perspective and their demands are really regularly receiving an audience and, and can't really be ignored. In this 2019 interview with the Vanguard CEO, Tim Buckley, you can hear him carefully avoid getting involved in a controversy between Donald Trump and the Fed. I want to get your reaction to something that the president apparently said just moments ago. And that is that in terms of economic risk to the United States, the U.S. Federal Reserve is a greater risk than the tariff tussle between us and China. How do you react to that? 
the Federal Reserve has done a wonderful job. If you look through time, what they did through the financial crisis to today, and you know they have to really focus on what's best for the economy, and they have that singular focus of what's going to be better for the economy of the U.S. and for the job market long term. They've done they've done a nice job of so trying to tune up the noise. So you think they're doing that? You do not see them then. I'm putting words in your mouth, and you're free to distance yourself from them. But you do not see the Federal Reserve as a primary risk to the U.S. economy even greater than China. I think they do the their best to figure out what is the information out there. Look at that information. How do we actually keep prices stable, maybe growing just a little bit? And how do we maximize employment? And if you look towards that, they've done a nice job on the employment side. And sure, people might want a little bit more inflation, but man, it beats the deflationary risk we had a few years back. They've done a nice job. And you know, my advice then would tune out the noise, keep thinking long term. Does it trouble you at all? that the administration seems to be critical of the Fed, uh, trying to maneuver it in a direction, or does this just come with the territory? Well, I'll leave that between the White House and the Fed. Um, I'll leave that, that debate between them. Speaking in June of this year, Larry Fink wasn't so reluctant to step into the field of political debate. Last one, Larry. Uh, you spend a fair amount of time talking to our leadership in Washington, as well as other capitals around the world. Uh, right now, I think it's fair to say the Biden administration has got something, a challenge on its hand when it comes to the economy. It's not getting a lot of credit, whether it should or not. If you were to give them one piece of advice about what to do right now that could make some difference in the short to medium term, what would it be? Fix immigration for legal immigration, uh, you know, and I think we all would have said that. You t there's, you know, if you talk to all the business, uh, the business roundtable, the U.S. Chamber. I mean, we have to be really focused on things like that. We can build America back, but if we're going to build America back in a non-inflationary way, if we're going to grow America, we're going to have to do that not just with our own. We're going to have to allow legal immigration. We could bring, you know, we educate over, you know, a few yeah. million young people every year at our in advanced degrees in America, and it's harder and harder for them to get a green card in America yeah. today. Um, we need to be rethink about you know the foundation of America. The foundation of America was on immigration, not and catch and release, catch and keep. Yeah, right? <laughs> I you know we're educating and letting them go. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know that doesn't sound like a good policy to me. And so BlackRock is very very vocal about the climate crisis. Um, and that comes in part from a genuine position in as much as, you know, they're invested across the entire global economy, meaning there are universal investors, the jargon for that. So they have every kind of asset class in every kind of industry and in every kind of geography. And so because of that, they are, you know, incredibly exposed to the impacts of the climate crisis in terms of how that might affect their assets. Um, so partly their engagement on that is legitimate. And partly it's making sure that, the way that climate crisis is addressed doesn't harm their business interests. And so I'm just going to sort of step back for a second and introduce a concept that we have worked on um, at Commonwealth, which is the organization where I work. And we published a report, which maybe we can put in the notes, um, defining uh, what we call asset manager capitalism. And that was a term originated by a German academic called Benjamin uh, Braun, who we've worked with. And basically, asset manager capitalism, which is what we consider the era that we're now in, um, is defined by an ownership structure that is a combination of huge concentration that I talked about before. So, you know, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, they account together for a full fifth of like all assets um, under management in the global investment industry. So that's huge. 
that combines with their universal exposure. So as I defined, you know, they're invested across the whole economy. They have pretty strong positions. So they've got good influence with all these firms. And then finally, they operate on a fee-based model according to which their revenues are the biggest when they grow just the aggregate pool of assets they manage. So they might charge you like a 5% fee on the size of the assets they manage for you. So the end result of that is that all these firms really care about is growing the aggregate scale of the assets under their management. Um, And for BlackRock, that ends up really coming across in the way that they engage on the climate crisis. So, for example, um, Larry Fink has been sort of called out in the past for forming what's called like a little bit of a shadow government. So there's this incredible revolving door between policymakers in powerful positions in the U.S. and the EU and even the U.K. I think, you know, George Osborne worked for them for a while and BlackRock. So in the Biden administration, for example, Brian Deese, um, who is an economic advisor to, to Biden, he was head of sustainability at BlackRock prior to that. And prior to that, he worked in the Obama administration. Mike Pyle, also in the Biden administration, um, used to be, I think, BlackRock's chief investment officer, some kind of title like that. And there are quite a few others um, that now have prominent positions in the Biden administration. And the kind of fingerprints of what BlackRock is interested in are kind of very present in infrastructure and climate related proposals. So instead of saying in those proposals, like, we're just going to have the state invest directly, you've got all sorts of kind of clever um, little tools that basically create new opportunities for private investors that are sort of backstopped and guaranteed by the state. Um, and that's hugely interesting to BlackRock, who would love the climate crisis to be resolved in a way that means they get to like invest in, profit from, and have controlling ownership of all sorts of new infrastructure systems that we need in decarbonized economies. They're quite strategic about you know wanting to be um, growing their assets and like in control of the future. And BlackRock's also been, you know, this is a lesser example, but their their influence is so profound that they have been, you know, invited to directly consult on, you know, the EU sustainable finance uh, regulations. They were also given control of the asset purchase program, which was the Federal Reserve's kind of response to uh, COVID-19. So they bought up all sorts of bonds, like corporate debt. Um, and BlackRock was given uh, the position of doing that and actually bought up a ton of their own funds in the process. And so they're really becoming increasingly kind of integrated with the infrastructure, particularly of the US state. Um, but it's definitely also present in the EU and the UK. What implications does the rise of index funds have for the fossil fuel industry in particular, and the ecological crisis that we're all facing? Yeah, so one of the interesting things that has been called out for a long time by campaigners and something that we've actually found some evidence for in research that we did at Commonwealth is that index funds might be creating what we call the holders of last resort effect when it comes to the fossil fuel industry. So what I mean by that is that, you know, what we've seen is a lot of active funds, you know, looking down the line at a world in which ideally we'll have some form of regulation of the fossil fuel industry, or at least we'll have so many incentives for renewable energy that, you know, fossil fuels will gradually become obsolete. Obviously, that's optimistic. But I think, you know, the investment industry is looking at the future and thinking, you know, fossil fuels are going to be a risky bet in the long run. So there are actually a lot of them are gradually, very slowly moving out of the fossil fuel industry. Um, But we found um, in the UK, at least, that 
passive funds have really been lagging in that respect. So over time, ownership of the fossil fuel industry is increasingly shifting into the passive sector and out of the active sector, which is quite interesting. And what that does is, you know, if you have passive funds that are required to keep buying up shares in uh, in these companies, it keeps their share price higher and it allows these companies to have sort of easier access to capital in other ways so they can, you know, borrow, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thing that's, I think, quite concerning to a lot of people. And you also end up if you have increasing passive ownership of the fossil fuel industry in a situation where some investors like Vanguard, who don't really act at all on the climate crisis, will have quite a lot of voting power and not really use that to try to drive change um, at these companies. And it's been a big question for you know the divestment community. So a lot of people have pushed for big investors to divest and they say, oh, you know what, we can't because we're just following this index and we have no choice and we have to stay invested in fossil fuels. Interestingly, that's actually been very recently challenged. So for a long time, this has been the case. Like no matter what happens, passive investors will not deviate from what's in the index they're given. And they refuse to do what's called introducing tracking error. Even in the wake of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school shooting in Parkland, Florida, which was a few years ago, you know, there's this incredible quote from a BlackRock executive who says, you know, Black Parkland was interesting for us because on the one hand, you know, you feel bad and you don't want to keep buying gun manufacturers, but on the other, you know, you don't want to introduce tracking error. And so that's how genuinely they were thinking about it. And it's the same with, you know, fossil fuels and the climate crisis. Very recently, in response to conflict in Ukraine, BlackRock stopped buying any securities from Russian companies. So no bonds, no shares in Russian companies, including in its index tracking funds. And the way that it did that is to go to the index providers. So there's three kind of companies that dominate index providing. It's MSCI, S&P, and FTSE Russell. And went to them and said, like, we're your biggest client and you need to stop putting Russian securities in the index. And that's a great way for them to avoid introducing tracking error because they're so powerful that they can just lobby the index providers to change the indices themselves. Speaking in January of this year, Larry Fink insisted that decarbonisation would have to be achieved by working with the big energy companies, not against them. One of the things that you have been very outspoken about and have singularly perhaps changed the conversation in boardrooms around the country and around the world is about the environment and really pushing companies to focus more on the environment. But at the same time, you say in this letter this year, you say we focus on sustainability not because we're environmentalists, but because we are capitalists and fiduciaries to our clients. How much of this is your view that the environment really does matter? And how much of it is your view that the profits matter and you think it's going to come because people are focused on the environment. I am just as much as a uh, as focused on environmental issues as I've ever been. And I believe we need to be moving forward. And I'm really pleased to say that $4 trillion of money has moved into more sustainable strategies. But that being said, I had a great deal of frustration 
in 2021 about the means in we were moving forward. We need to be working with hydrocarbon companies, not against them. We need to be working with the communities that are involved in hydrocarbons, not against them. But we also need to be working with all with, with new startup companies to rapidly deploy and create new technologies so we can get to a decarbonized world by 2050. At the present pace, Andrew, we're not going to get there. A few months later, Fink repeated his commitment to incrementalism. Europe did change their taxonomy. A year ago, their taxonomy said gas was brown. Magically, now because of the problem, gas is green. Um, and, and David, I've always said the energy transition is not brown to green. It's going to be from dark brown to medium brown, the, the medium light brown, the light brown, and on and on and on. We may develop new technology to leapfrog a couple of those shades, but I can't see that technology yet. But let's be clear, to do this transition, and the problem is some environmentalists saying, Larry, we don't have time to do that. Right. And there lies the debate. Do we have time to go from dark brown to medium brown to light brown? We could all debate that. The question is, do politicians have the time to allow that? And there lies the construct that we're living in today. But I think when it comes to the ecological crisis and the way that we resolve it, there's other kind of interesting implications to the way that passive funds have changed how capital is allocated. And partly that's a tendency, and this is documented really, really well in the Trillions book by Robin Wigglesworth, great name, um, that I reviewed and that we can, that I highly recommend to anyone who finds this interesting, which is that there's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy effect of passive funds where when they allocate money to a fund, more goes into the bigger companies than into the smaller companies in proportion to how big they are. So when you're buying the S&P 500, you're putting proportionately more into you know, Tesla than you are into you know, Hasbro or like, I don't know, Alaskan Airlines. And that creates a system in which you continue to like slightly favor incumbent and big firms over time. And when it comes to things like renewable energy. They tend to be much smaller firms. They tend to you know, not be big enough to even get included in indices. And I think that's, you know, if you were going to try and resolve this climate crisis in a way that, you know, involves a capitalist approach, that's a big problem because you're, you know, the market isn't efficiently allocating capital to these dynamic new upstarts. It's just kind of favoring incumbent industries of which, you know, fossil fuels are a big one. And the other is that increasingly passive investing um, has huge implications for governments in the global south and in what they call emerging markets. And that's because, you know, passive funds are increasingly big in buying up the sovereign debt of many countries around the world who unfortunately have to sort of borrow from private investors on the global market. And that means that, you know, whether or not a country gets included in an index um, that investors are interested in, has genuinely like potentially life and death implications because it hugely affects how much it costs for them to borrow, which means, you know, it hugely affects how much they're able to borrow on what terms. Um, and that has, you know, significant, significant governance implications for countries that don't have, you know, monetary sovereignty. Um, and there's really interesting work by an academic called Jan Fickner looking at how, you know, the big index providers, um, those big three index providers, 
have become a force in how poor companies access finance that is, you know, now rivaling the, the scale of the IMF and World Bank. And that's, I think, a really interesting phenomenon. And from the perspective of, you know, the climate crisis, it's a huge problem, particularly because in the event of crisis, so like COVID-19 or other crisis events, there's now evidence to show that, you know, passive funds are the first and the quickest to immediately like flood all of their investments out of those risky sort of government bonds and into safer havens. And that has, you know, hugely damaging effects for those countries because it immediately increases the cost of borrowing for them, you know, in a moment of crisis. So as we look forward down the line to increasing acute moments of crisis in the context of a much larger climate and ecological crisis, that's really concerning from a justice perspective, from a sovereignty perspective, and, you know, from the perspective of, you know, the ability of countries who are on the front lines of this crisis to adapt and to mitigate and, you know, to have financing on fair terms to do what they need to do to, you know, survive and ensure that people are safe and able to, you know, adapt to a rapidly changing world. Whether or not Larry Fink is prepared to walk the walk over climate action, some of his colleagues in the world of finance still refuse even to talk the talk. Stuart Kirk was the head of Responsible Investment at HSBC. In May of this year, Kirk delivered an extraordinary speech at a conference organised by the Financial Times. He insisted that climate risk was simply not something for investors to worry about. I completely get that there is a competition for funding. I completely get that at the end of your central bank career, there are still many, many years to fill in. You've got to say something. You've got to fly around the world to conferences. You've got to out hyperbole the next guy. But I feel like it's getting a little bit out of hand. The constant reminder that we are doomed, the constant reminder that within decades it's all over. And indeed, Sharon said, we are not going to survive. And indeed, no one ran from the room. In fact, most of you barely looked up from your mobile phones at the prospect of non-survival. It's become so hyperbolic that no one really knows how to get anyone's attention at all. Now, I wouldn't normally mind that. 25 years in the finance industry, there's always some nut job telling me about the end of the world. I've dealt with gold bugs my whole financial career. The roof's going to cave down. Y2K, does anyone remember Y2K? Anyone old enough? The lifts didn't stop. But what bothers me about this one is the amount of work these people make me do. The amount of regulation coming down the pipes, the number of people in my team and at HSBC dealing with financial risk from climate change. Last night, Target fell 25%. 25%. And people are asking the board of US companies to spend time dealing with climate risk. I work at a bank that's being attacked by crypto, We've got regulators in the US trying to stop us. We've got the China problem. We've got a housing crisis looming. We've got interest rates going up. We've got inflation coming down the pipes. And I'm being told to spend time and time again looking at something that's going to happen in 20 or 30 years. Hence, the proportionality is completely out of whack. As far as Kirk was concerned, the people of Florida and California also had no reason to worry about rising sea levels or raging wildfires. 
human beings have been fantastic at adapting to change, adapting to climate emergencies, and we will continue to do so. Who cares if Miami is six meters underwater in a hundred years? Amsterdam's been six meters underwater for ages, and that's a really nice place. We will cope with it. California's fire budget, and I don't doubt the science at all, there will be fires, but we do need to adapt. Their fire budget is only 1% of their state budget. It's 0.1% of their GDP. If economic growth continues how I expect it to grow, we can solve this through adaption. And one of the tragedies of um, this whole debate, and which is what we obsess about at HSBC, is we spend way too much on mitigation financing and not enough on adaption financing. And I'm sure most of you will agree with that. Kirk resigned from his position at HSBC earlier this month, claiming that he was a victim of cancel culture. Your new book is called The Value of a Whale on the Illusions of Green Capitalism. What are the key arguments that you set out to challenge in the book? Yeah, it's a good question. Big question. Um, so a lot of what we talked about today, I actually um, cover in, in the book. So I'm quite interested in the increasing role of the asset management industry and, and finance in shaping how we think about and how governments think about responding to climate crisis. But I think the fundamental argument um, in the value of a whale is that we need to be like contesting and thinking about the way that capitalism is adapting itself to quote unquote green itself, at least in in name and image in response to uh, the climate crisis. So, you know, the climate crisis is both an unprecedented like threat to the capitalist model, um, but it's also increasingly perceived by capitalist interests as like a new terrain in which they can profit. There's all sorts of new areas for profit making, for investing. And that to me is quite a big concern because most green capitalist solutions, as I call them, um, are based around two approaches, one of which is sort of doing everything they can to minimize disruption to the existing sort of economic system and arrangements of ownership and wealth and power. And the second is to ensure new opportunities for profit-making and accumulation in a rapidly changing world and future. A former Clinton administration staffer, Roger Ballantyne, made the following pitch for green capitalism at a TED Talk in 2018. Climate change is the greatest market failure in the history of capitalism. Now, don't get me wrong. Capitalism has produced a lot of wonderful things for our society. But protecting the planet is not one of them. Our traditional response to this problem of capitalism causing environmental harm has been to try to restrict and constrain the profit motive through mandates and prescriptions and fines and even criminal penalties. We call this type of regulation command and control. Now, if any of you have small children like I do, you know that trying to command and control someone can lead to, shall we say, an adversarial dynamic. <laughs> Confronted with commands and controls, industry invested in lawyers and lobbyists and even politicians, that may be a different talk, to resist these constraints on their profit maximization. This dynamic of command and control regulation on the one hand 
and the hard-headed resistance of many in industry, on the other hand, has played itself out in the halls of Congress and state houses and courtrooms across the country. And it has led far too many to assume that if something's good for the environment, well, it must be bad for business, and vice versa. Now, there will always be bad actors. We will always need some tough environmental laws to deter the worst kind of behavior. And yes, we continue to have a market failure in that we don't fully price carbon emissions, which is why I support a carbon tax. But as important as they are, we need to think beyond these traditional policy responses to the problem, which are largely focused on deterring the corporate behavior we don't want. And instead, we need to think more about how to encourage the corporate behavior we do want. We need to think about how to align the power of competition and innovation and profit-seeking and even greed with addressing the climate problem. Instead of investing in lawyers and lobbyists to resist change, we want companies to invest in smart executives and engineers whose job it is to innovate for better environmental performance. And so, you know, carbon pricing, for example, is like the totemic example of green capitalism, where, you know, a carbon price really sets out to do as little as it can to disrupt existing patterns of, you know, power and inequality and control. And it relies fundamentally on a belief in the ability of the market to, to adapt and to like, you know, be an invisible hand that is wise and can steer us towards a greener future. Um, and it's all based on kind of just like capitalist ideology um, related to faith in the market and market actors and incentives and the price signal as the kind of like ultimate arbiter of what we should do. And that's exactly what I set out to challenge um, in the book, which is that, you know, market-based logics, however you might feel about them in other contexts, particularly in the context of ecological and climate crisis, um, are just kind of non-starters. And one thing that the book considers at the end is like, Failing other things, failing other chances to resolve these crises, should we accept green capitalist solutions? So whether that's like sustainable finance or carbon pricing and carbon offset markets and, you know, putting a value on a whale, which is what the book starts off with. And that's that's a sort of big new frontier in this space. And the answer that I think it arrives at is no, um, because they're both, you know, practically ineffective and in doing so create a huge distraction um, from what actually needs to be done. So they create like the veneer of progress where there really is none, which causes delay and distraction. And then the other is, you know, interrogating um, the question of is this world and its arrangement of power and wealth one that we actually want to carry forward or should we be actively advocating in the transition to hopefully a decarbonized and sustainable future um, for something radically different um, and a whole different set of, you know, prioritization of value and thinking about what we actually care about and want to take with us and preserve and what we would happily kind of change or, or discard. If green capitalism doesn't have the answers, then what are the prospects for the kind of political action that would actually be needed? And how would you say the pandemic has affected the picture after two full years now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> this one might not be the most optimistic answer. Yeah, I think if anything, the 
pandemic has really kind of like cemented the uh, conditions for green capitalism to thrive and particularly all the kind of litany of like build back better and green recovery pledges as watered down and as whittled down as they may have been. Um, were ultimately built around the kind of green capitalist perspective, or as we talked about before, the kind of like using the state as a backstop for private um, investing and accumulation, um, a phenomenon that a scholar called Daniela Gabor calls the Wall Street consensus. So again, just using the public purse to backstop private profits while it taking all the risk on the public front. And that was kind of really the bread and butter of like most green recovery and build back better packages that we saw, whether it was, you know, the EU Green Deal in the UK with our sort of green recovery plans, whatever they were, and uh, in the States with um, uh, with obviously Build Back Better, which has yet to pass, or, you know, the infrastructure package as well had a lot of that in it. And so in many ways, the pandemic was an initial test for the strength of that kind of agenda. Um, and I think the reaction to it has showed it to be quite a cohesive kind of framework that governments are really eager uh, to follow. And that's obviously, from my perspective, concerning. Um, the pandemic was also an incredibly good time for um, investors and people with financial assets and for you know, passive markets and for sustainable finance, you know, ESG and sustainable finance, ESG stands for environmental social governance. It's a type of like greenwashy investing. Um, you know, it had a record year in 2020. Um, and so again, that like further cemented a coalition, which is embedded in the growth of financial assets and has that as a priority over time. And so, yeah, it wasn't exactly great. On the other hand, it also sort of provided obviously a huge rupture and a reminder of the kind of unsustainability of our existing system. And the other thing I think it kind of did, although we're rapidly losing that as everyone goes back to normalcy, is really confront us with the question of like, who and what do we actually value in the economy? So obviously clapping for carers was a garbage kind of like way to avoid talking about paying them more. But, you know, I think it made a lot of people confront who is actually, you know, valuable in the economy as a worker, who is like doing the real work and labor. Um, and what do we actually value in our lives and what do we need to like survive and thrive? And what do we care about? Whether that's, you know, access to nature and green spaces and being in the fresh air in the pandemic, whether that's being able to spend time with our family and friends. And that all sounds a bit twee, but I genuinely think, you know, those are the kind of questions that we need to be asking, um, you know, like what do we consider the foundation of a good life? What do we actually value? And by being able to focus on those and center our politics around those and our response to the climate crisis around demanding a future that is sustainable and centered around those while discarding, you know, happiness derived from mass consumerism, for example, um, I think that can be a really powerful way to kind of orient ourselves in the way that we think about the response uh, to ecological crisis. Now, whether that has political cut through is another question, um, but hopefully we can kind of tap into the salience of, you know, the importance of childcare, social care, health care, access to nature and green spaces, the ability to spend time with our family and friends, you know, not wanting to have massively insecure labor and obviously the resurgence of uh, trade unions in response to inflation has been quite interesting in that respect and maybe that's a secondary pandemic effect that's quite encouraging all of those things i think can inform like a climate politics that speaks to people and you know might have a chance of winning 
Many thanks to Adrienne Buller for that introduction to the rise of asset manager capitalism. You can read more about this subject in her review of Trillions on the Jacobin website. You can also find a link to her new report for Commonwealth in the notes for this show.